Hello everyone, welcome to Biotech Banter. This podcast features top experts to help you learn how to ensure success in clinical manufacturing. Today's episode features Dr. David Smith, Vice President of Development at Biocentric, which is a collaborative contract development and manufacturing organization focused exclusively on cell and gene therapies. He'll be speaking with Dr. Kasim Rafiq, who's an Associate Professor in Cell and Gene Therapy Bioprocess Engineering at University College London. Today, they'll be discussing the realities of manufacturing, including automated processes, the benefits and possibilities around so-called platformization, the challenges associated with moving early-stage companies into a commercialization structure, and how we in the industry can support the academics developing these processes. I'm David Smith, your host for today's podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome Kasim Rafiq to join me today. Many thanks for the invitation. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you, and it's been a, a while since we uh, have managed to catch up. Um, and I'm actually going to dive straight in sure. um, and tackle your brain straight from the start. Um, you know, I think I've seen that, you know, with this platform and the podcast, I really want to dive into the reality of manufacturing. I think it's so commonly spoken at conferences from key opinion leaders and the leaders of fantastic groups what the problems are. But what we don't actually hear from, I feel, is operators, those in quality control, quality assurance, the ones on the ground actually doing the hard grafting of getting these products out to patients. And so with this podcast, you know, I think it's important to get that balance of the key opinion leaders such as yourself, but also we're going to be talking to the operators. We all want their viewpoint, their perspective, what works, what doesn't work, and how do we help them produce a better quality product? That and sounds fantastic. The aim of the game. And so something that, you know, been playing around in my head for a while now is this idea is I've seen 50 plus different processes, you know, a lot in the immunotherapy space, looking at autologous suspension-based therapies and everyone talks about fully automated end-to-end solutions um, closing processes up and I think back that if we had that as an option 10 years ago and when you look at Yes Carter, Chimera, Brianzi, Abecma and the list goes on thankfully right now now, do you think our industry would look any different if they had fully closed automated solutions 10 years ago? <laughs> it's, it's a great opening gambit and question. Um, probably not, I, I think, is, is the honest answer, because I think, especially with the early assets, I think the focus has been to demonstrate efficacy. It's been to demonstrate feasibility and almost proof of concept. Um, and those were processes that were developed originally on the platforms that they were developed on. Um, and appeared to work and they were designed I think really just to show that these therapies could be efficacious, they could be regulated and could be commercialized. Um, So I think in in short probably not, Um, but now I think as we move forward there may be a case for you know automating and, and, and closing and so on and I think you know there was a strong argument from tech developers to kind of go down that route but I think ultimately it comes down to what is right for the process, what is right for the company, and what is right for the actual product that is being developed at that stage. If you can automate, close, and scale, 
you know, I think you, you, you've hit the jackpot and that sounds fantastic. But I think the reality is we're still perhaps some way away from that. And it's a case of, well, what can we do in the intervening period and what can do, we do to try and achieve that end goal? Yeah, no, I, I think that's great and a crucial kind of open-end thought process, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of where the industry is today and how far we have come, and yet maybe we haven't really. And I think it's something really interesting as we look to, you know, probably the events of the last six months, the way the markets have started to sway a little bit, um, you know, and a, a bit of the pressure I feel that's coming in from regulators that there's a bit more of an ask on quality of understanding the science. You know, when we talk about is it efficacious, if it, is it efficacious enough? How do you prove that through the analytics and things that, you know, I think there's a, there's a real struggle in terms of getting your hands around that and really being able to demonstrate it early enough and understanding kind of your product and in the realm of automation, how you can apply automation to that. I think the thing that scares me the most is without understanding the core science of your product, it's really hard to automate it. Yeah. Specifically in the autologous field where you do have that variation coming in. And if you don't have a good grip on that, your automation has to be incredibly flexible. The more flexibility we build, the more costly it is, the longer it takes to develop, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's just a, a worry, let's say, in the back of my mind of do we understand the science enough in order to truly automate our processes yeah. right now? I, I think it's it's a great, uh, I think, way of thinking. And I think if you go back to other manufacturing sectors, let's look at car manufacturing and so on, really automation only became possible when we really understood quality. And we really understood what was the the requirements, the the end use, the the defects, and and so on. And once you understand that, it, you know, in, to a great extent, then you can start to automate because you know what you're automating around. Um, it's a lot more challenging doing that with a, a living cell product. Um, but I think we have to think in a similar way. If you try and automate too early, you're potentially automating a bad process, or you're automating a process which is inherently variable. And and I think that is the major challenge with autologous therapies, where you do have inherent variability. Now, I would contend that not all of that variability is down to the different patients or the different donors. I think some of that is process related. But assuming that we all recognize that there is inherent donor to donor variability and patient variability to some extent, how will you automate a process that accommodates that becomes a challenge. There are things emerging, such as the idea of adaptive manufacture, where you have a process that can adapt to the incoming variability in raw material. But I think ultimately it still becomes a, a case of to what extent does automation benefit rather than hinder? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to start thinking about. And, and ultimately, the big part of that is if you start to automate, that has inherent costs. And those costs can be very high, uh, may not lead to significant return on investment and is a cause for concern for many SMEs who are working in this space as to should they automate, when do they automate, what do they automate and how do they automate. So I think these are the things that have to be considered. No, that's, that's terrific. And do you think it's on as an industry, you know, and I think there's many roles that 
you know, a CDMO like Biocentric can play. You know, it has its hands in a number of different processes, has a good overview of kind of the industry, the direction it's moving in, the asks from developers. You know, something that we've been puzzling with is automation would be so much easier, more cost effective if we could platformize and really get to that point of standardized manufacturing. When you touch on you know, the car industry. And the reason that it works is because they are producing an identical car, automobile, not to confuse the car <laughs> um, every single time. We're not. And I'm not sure in the autologous world we ever will. Mm. And so, you know, it's an interesting concept of can we platformize? I think, you know, as we looked at how do we maybe lower the burden of automation? You know, we know that it can be enabling. We know that it can lower the costs. It can reduce you know, the burden of labor, which is a huge one. And I think as I start to look at it as what the role of a CDMO like Biocentric could be. So if I take you know, ACEL from ARM is a great example, right, where they've put out a, I'd say, a fairly standard CAR-T process. We could platformize that. We can standardize around that. You bring in a different viral vector. You bring in a different unit operation here and there. But generally, it stays the same. And it's not necessarily what a developer wants to hear because they've all got their magic source and their special process. But what I, I do believe is that if we could standardize that from the manufacturing standpoint, we can really reduce our cost. From a CDMO standpoint, if we just run the same thing every time and maybe we have a different viral vector in, that makes our life so much easier. It makes training so much easier. It makes supply chain so much easier, right? And we start lowering the burden of all of these things. Um, do you think that's a reality? Do you think that's something that is the role of a CDMO? Because I don't see it happening at a therapeutic. I don't think the, the platformization necessarily worked maybe for their pipeline, but as people tackle the autologous and the allergenic pipelines and all the differences, I'm just wondering whether it makes more sense from a CDMO standpoint to say, this is our CAR-T platform. Great question. I, I think the short answer is yes, in, and, and I'd like to kind of elaborate on that. I think CDMOs probably have the most critical role within the sector. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. I, I say that having worked in the sector now for the last 10 to 15 years, you know, seeing the the ebbs and flows of the industry, but those who've also seen the ebbs and flows are the CDMOs. I mean, they've worked with a number of processes, a number of platforms, a number of clients, a number of you know, you, you name it, they've worked with it, and and it's almost a thankless role in many ways. Um, but it's one of the most critical because you do get to see the variation, you do get to see the and variation here. I mean, in variation processes and and technologies and so on. Coming back to the specific point about. CDMOs and the opportunity to to standardize and and platformize or develop platforms. I think if we could get to that point that point that point it would be ideal. And I think we've seen that with the the development of the biopharma industry where okay, we don't necessarily have the same platform process across every monoclonal antibody that is produced, but they're relatively similar. And like you said, you know, they might be taking out one unit operation, swapping in another uh, and so on, but it's generally standardized. You know, you have your kind of standardized upstream and then standardized kind of downstream process. If we could get to that point for cell and gene therapy, that would simplify things because then it is, it simplifies the process. There's more interchangeability. It reduces, I think, the burden of training 
um, between for staff because you don't necessarily have to have skilled operators who know how to culture this particular cell uh, or, or, or generate this particular vector for this particular process. It becomes less of an art and more of an actual manufacturing yeah. standard. No, that's crucial. I think taking a, a slight change, I guess, in the direction we've been talking about, you know, heavily around automation, standardization and things. And I think what I hear a lot and, you know, I somewhat believe is this transformation that we need within manufacturing. You know, I think today it's been incremental. I think the technology that's come along has been incremental. It's taken from, say, the blood industry by a farmer. We've made small changes to try and make it a bit more self-therapy specific. Um, I think now that there is self-therapy specific equipment it's been helpful um, for sure um, but we'll keep on hearing that we need a complete transformation right we can't keep on building bigger facilities and adding more people you know and I think you know playing that back in my head is it a transformation in manufacturing in terms of technology that we need or is it the science when I start looking at t-charge you know, Penn have come out with their 24-hour process. That's a very different manufacturing process to the standard 14, 10, seven-day car world that we've lived in now for five, six years. And so, you know, is the, is the transformation happening in science and technology is going to have to keep up? Because, you know, for probably four years, I've thought it was the other way around. I've always thought it's going to be technology that performs that transformation that we need but actually, it's looking like science is going to win out here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a great observation uh, and one that I've started to slowly come around to as well. I think, you know, com coming from an engineering background, my my perspective always was the technology will dictate the process and it will dictate, you know, how we manufacture. But I think, you know, now we, I think we're all questioning what does manufacturing actually look like for these therapies? And we, we've, as you mentioned, you alluded to a couple of the examples there where we're looking at, you know, you know, one two-day manufacturing processes, or I mean, e even now with the the emergence of the the fantastic work at UPenn on on the in vivo CAR-T, do we even need to manufacture the cells at all? Um, you know, these innovations and and this transformation or evolution in science, I think, will impact um, undoubtedly the, the manufacturing process. And I think it is a fine balance between making sure that we benefit from the, the the scientific innovations uh which are happening at pace i mean given that you know it's only been what you know almost a decade or just over a decade where we had things like crispr emerge and so on and now you know these are embedded in in processes we're having phase you know clinical trials you know employing crispr technologies and so on to the more recent innovations around manufacturing to to in you know um uh, in vivo car t and i think the other big um innovation that has emerged over the last two or three years post-COVID was the development of the COVID vaccines, which, you know, I would say are in reality, to some extent, a type of gene therapy. If you're looking at lipid nanoparticles, you know, uh, delivering mRNA sequences um, to express proteins, then suddenly that becomes a potential uh, gene therapy in that respect. And so I think there is a question of, okay, well, manufacturing, as we thought of it five, six years ago, 
probably is going to be different to what manufacturing might need to be in the next five or six years. And a lot of it has to be driven by the science and innovation. Otherwise, you may get left behind. And this presents a challenge. I'm not saying it's easy. It presents a major challenge for everyone involved. It presents a challenge for therapeutic developers. If and when do they switch to this new type of manufacturing process or, or, or go to the new science? Again, if they have freedom to operate. Um, it presents a challenge for tech developers. You know, they might might have been developing a new technology for the last five, six years, and suddenly it may not become obsolete, but the core functionality may not be required because we now want to culture in a day rather than 14 days. So, so how do we manage and balance that process? But I think there has to be, I, I think, you know, it's still a case of we have to wait and see what's going to win out. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a horrible position to be in because you're sitting on the fence, <laughs> but you almost have to see, you know, w- what will be the most likely manufacturing paradigm that will emerge and and kind of hedge your you know you could hedge your bets now uh, and take a higher risk approach um, which I'm sure some companies will do and and they may be the eventual winners or it may be that actually those who are slightly risk averse wait and see as often big pharma tends to do and then heavily invest when something becomes quite prominent might be the way to go. Yeah that's a that's a really interesting one in terms of you know, when I look at the technology companies, you know, and it's taken, like you say, five, six years to develop technology. You know, the idea started five, six years ago and the industry looked very different. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the the need for technology providers, even manufacturers, right, that to be able to pivot and change to the way that the industry is moving and it does move fast and it does pivot extremely fast. You know, I think we could sit down in 12 months time and there's probably going to be some, you know, phase one, phase two trials with 24 hour processes exactly. for CAR-T. And as a manufacturer, you know, even how do we pivot? We built all of our clean rooms and are building clean rooms, you know, largely for an autologous you know, RT process that needs 500 square foot, you need safety cabinets, X, Y, and Z. Suddenly you're 24 hours. Are you now bedside? Yeah. Or at least close to patient. Are you now fresh, not frozen? So all of the sort of logistics and the technology in that space is less desired than it's needed to be. And I think, you know, for sure it's helped the industry get to where it is. And it's not work that's been done in vain and we've learned a lot through that journey but i think that ability to pivot rapidly is going to be crucial um and i think on that point you know as we look to see what biocentric's future looks like how biocentric makes its impact in the industry in an extremely positive light one of the things and the reason that i joined was to take a fairly young startup company that has a pedigree of actually producing clinical lots, has clean rooms, has that quality system, but really the blank canvas of what does the industry need? And something that they kept coming back to was this need of, a lot of the technology is focused on the commercial. How do we scale out? How do we get to the 10,000 patients? But the reality is that I think 99% of the companies are in phase two or below. And so I think even, you know, 83% of phase one and below the numbers that, you know, recently heard. And so are we, I get that we need to focus, I get that we need solutions for that commercial, but we've still got a huge failure rate at the early stage. 
which I think for me is where adoption of technology has to occur and potentially isn't occurring because of that high failure rate and just the risk that companies are going in. And so for me and where I think Viacentric can have a, a huge part is how do we take those early stage clients? How do we get them into their clinical trial rapidly, effectively, cost efficiently, and get them through some of those early phase, the first in human trials, prove that the product works? Because we all know that you know the batch record's still evolving, the technology's still evolving. Even through phase one and arguably into phase two, companies are still learning about their product and making tweaks and changes. And so having a rigid infrastructure that doesn't allow for that, I think is going to be really challenging. And so when I look to a lot of the service providers right now with a focus on commercial, I can see that trying to move a early stage client into a commercial setting for their phase one trial is going to be really detrimental to our industry. Like I said, that's 99% of our industry is in that phase. So, I mean, do you, do you align to that? Do you see any problems, issues like arising from early stage going into kind of commercial infrastructure? Do you see a need there? And I think it's interesting, obviously, from an academic, you know, there's a lot of academic medical centers that are set up for those early phase to then hand off later stage. And so I think just understanding how as an industry as a whole, do we move people from phenomenal ideas in preclinical, get through, you know, I think 15 years ago, we were talking about the value of death. That seems to have disappeared. But honestly, it's still there. We just don't talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's it's a great point. Uh, and, and I think that's the, and, and the work, the research that I do in particular is trying to address some of those pain points around um, technology selection, um, integration, kind of developing the process further so that it it could be um, more uh, easily adopted um, by, you know, through later tech transfer. But I think the, the big challenge, as you alluded to, is I think many of the technologies at the moment, as they stand, or those that are being developed, do focus extensively on the commercial, but they don't necessarily take into account that actually most academic medical centres, most academic groups, where, let's be honest, the vast majority of innovation comes from, um, can't afford the, that equipment and can't afford to invest or can't take the risk to say, well, actually, that's the technology we're going to use unless it's a proven technology. And let's be honest, I mean, when we look at the technologies available on the market at the moment, um, one that has been particularly successful in terms of adoption by early stage academic groups um, and, and SMEs is the Milteni Prodigy Clinimax. Um, and that's a technology because I think it has worked for many um, to some extent that people have adopted and they're looking at as, as an early stage manufacturing platform. But I think, you know, where there is a, an absolute need is to say, well, actually, what is it that the academic medical centers or academic researchers or the clinical innovators, what technologies do they currently use? Let's be honest, they've, the vast majority still use what we would consider to be rudimentary technologies, tea flasks, culture bags, um, you know, well plates, whatever it might be. Those that are slightly more, you know, more advanced, maybe using things like geo bioreactors and so on. But that's because they're cheap, they're cheerful, they work. And, you know, you, you don't have to spend, you know, huge amounts of money investing in these technologies. So it's low risk, 
from a cost standpoint, but also importantly, I think that's what people forget to realize, these are technologies that are, you know, fundamentally easy to understand. You know, we know how, you know, we, we everyone who's done any cell culture can use a T-flask, can use a, a GeoX bioreactor, can use a culture bag. And I think that emphasis is important to make it as easy as possible for the users to be able to use and and, and so on. But I think having good small scale models or scaled down models is absolutely critical to whatever technology you decide to 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 proceed with. But I think the other the other aspect of it is um, I think what we're starting to see is especially with the, the the large pharma companies that have or biopharma companies that have developed assets and maybe commercialized and so on is that with their you know they've got the benefit of of hindsight and being being able to learn from that process. So for their second, third, maybe fourth generation asset, they can then start to think about, okay, well, we have these issues, we can maybe, you know, automate earlier, we can integrate this technology and so on. But I always believe, and, and we work, we've worked with a number of SMEs within this space, that there is scope to do a, a thorough technology evaluation um, at an early stage. Now, whether the companies have the ability, have the investment, have the finances, or the time to do it is another question. But that's where we've tried to integrate. And I'm sure the likes of Biocentric and other CDMOs can offer that service and, and provide that support to say, well, actually, we can support you in your early stage development so that we, it de-risks your later commercial activity. Yeah, and it's a really interesting one from a CDMO. And I've thought, you know, we touched on earlier around platformization and potentially it's the role of a CDMO to do that. You know, I think there's, you know, a lot of, the relationships that we have with our clients, you know, people throw out partnerships. I mean, it's a partnership and I truly believe it does have to be a partnership because there's a win-win there. There is the ability for Biocentric to take, you know, maybe a very rudimental, as you said, process and put some automation around it, not only potentially improves robustness and quality and things like that, but actually lowers labor time and lowers the burden on our operators and things and so there's a win for biocentric in that and so there is definitely when i look at partnership rationale that you have to come together to do that it can't be one player forcing it upon another and when there's a win-win there's a joint venture to it and i think that for me is how you know this industry is going to move forward and i think you know the academic parties have a huge role to play in that as well and a huge breadth of knowledge when it comes to um, the different technologies that are out there and what works what doesn't work um, and how we really move I think like you say from maybe a GVEX process onto a, an automated bioreactor of some sort um, without having to take steps back into clinical trials and things so I think that's kind of where I see biocentric having a huge role of being able to take some of those early processes, get them in rapidly, um, you know, and talking about tech transfer in a matter of months. There's no real reason why it needs to take as long as it does, yeah. because we start with a blank sheet of paper each time. We don't have to. Exactly. We can platformize aspects of it, for sure, right today, that we do a cell count pretty much happens always the same way if you do an NC200, you don't have to rewrite that. Yeah. And so there is kind of, benefits and I think just thinking through you know even which aspects do we automate there's some things that we can automate very easily because we do do exactly the same thing time and time and time again it's the things that change which actually 
people hear automation and jump straight to process automation. Yeah. No, but actually, that's the bit that generally changes. All the peripheries roughly stay the same. So yeah. Actually, QC, things like that. Exactly. Doing the same thing. That makes sense to kind of automate those things. But it doesn't sound as exciting. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I think that that comes down, that's part of it. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, to, to touch on, you said rudimental process, which I think is an interesting, right? I think a lot of people say academic process, right? And in terms of, you know, I don't think it's necessarily said in the, the best light that we have academic processes and that well, we need to change them and we need to... Um, update them, make them more GMP and things. It's used so negatively. Do you, how do you react to that in the sense of an academic process is seen as a negative thing? uh, Yeah, I do take issue with that because I think it belies where this industry has come from um, and where the innovation is still coming from. You know, this industry is built on academic clinical innovation. and yes, there's something to be said for processes that are still using tea flasks or culture bags or whatever, um, you know, to then try and think about, you know, scaling, commercializing, automating and so on. It can be challenging to use some of those technologies. But I think it's those processes which have really propelled the industry. You know, let's be honest, many of the processes that are even commercial, as we would say now, would still be considered fairly rudimentary in, in some respect. And I think it's a case of, well, you know, we don't want to undermine or belittle the work that academics and, and academic processes in general. But I think it's a case of how do we ensure and support um, the academics who are developing these processes and the researchers and the clinicians to be able to think, OK, well, you know, we may still use a T-flask, but actually we might move away from um, using serum in our medium. We might move towards chemically defined reagents at an early stage so that these processes um, although they may still be small scale, are easier to be, you know, tech transferred later because there's fewer issues that have to be resolved. You know, we already know that the process works with chemically defined reagents. We already know that this process works with, you know, let's say soluble antibodies or whatever it might be. And and um, and and there may be, you know, scale challenges that we have to solve, but it's a process that works. I think we have to be mindful of that. And I think it also is, I think, you know, somewhat. Um, derogatory to some extent to the fantastic work that academics and clinicians have done. Um, having said that, I think there is, you know, the, the case we made that actually, you know, if we could train academics, researchers, clinicians to think with a more translational mindset, and when I say translation here, I mean kind of thinking more industry commercial mindset, um, to address some of those issues at an earlier stage, I think that would be a win-win for everyone as well. Um, but yeah, I, I often don't like hearing or using the term academic process in a belittling way because I don't think it benefits anyone. There are certainly perhaps you could say more rudimentary processes, but that have, you know, with time and effort could be tech transferred. Um, but I think there's things that you can do at the early stage that would make that easier. Yeah, no, for sure. Like you say, the academic is where our industry has been. And I would argue still is. I think that academic relationship and I think industry has a part to play to do more to it. I think we mentioned earlier a cell as a great platform to say this is kind yeah. of the standard within industry you start bringing in terms like qtpp cqas yeah get people thinking about this about manufacturability about what it means to take how you're doing it today how do you scale up scale out how do you look at that i think that transformation 
you know, I like to think is starting to happen. I think some of the um, Southern Gene Therapy Committees, you know, ISCT, ARM, you know, they have huge roles to play and being able to kind of bring those groups together um, and pretty much advance the field. Right? Yeah. We need all of that innovation. Absolutely. And as an industry, we need to be able to take that innovation and actually bolt on somewhat the GMP-ness, the engineering yeah. side of it and the scale up and scale out. And we know that's going to happen. We know that it's going to come from academia and through. And I think, you know, as a as an industry, we need to be better prepared and understand that and actually see the benefits of it. Right? There is huge benefits to having manual open processes that are extremely flexible whilst we're still learning. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where the conundrum comes, because when you look at flexibility, that's not what you want to have when you automate a process. You know, it's almost the antithesis of, of automating a process, but it's absolutely needed in some cases, especially if your your process is still relatively early stage and you still don't fully understand the um, perhaps the efficacy or the quality or the safety aspects or the the productivity of the, of the cell material and so on. And you're still defining that having flexibility is absolutely critical. And I think it's that balance that we're often trying to to um, to, to to cross or, or to try and maintain. Coming back to the point you made earlier about um, things like A-cell and, and aging by by the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, um, but and also organizations like the IACT, I think they have an absolutely critical role in providing a sector-wide, impartial, almost independent perspective. You know, we've got stakeholders from all um, you know, organizations, companies, uh, academic institutes represented on, particularly, you know, I mean, actively involved in ISET, which I think for me plays a, an absolutely fundamental role in, in, in supporting the, the sector. And I think that type of network, that type of perspective, and being open and honest about where we are with relevant stakeholders represented on, on key committees or meetings, whatever it may be, is the only way we're going to benefit. You know, we can't just have tech developers doing their own thing in isolation, therapeutic manufacturers doing their what, what they're doing based on their technologies and academics doing their own thing. And, you know, you know, aside from all the other stakeholders, regulators, mm-hmm. um, you know, those in standards bodies and so on. I think it's absolutely critical that we do have a network and a forum, not just a meeting forum, but documentation. So ASL and AGN have been fantastic. The guidance from ISCT has been excellent. I think having all of these stakeholders come together and really try and, from an impartial standpoint, address these issues is the only way the sector will will, will really move forward. Yep, I think that's a great point to uh, finish this up on um, as we look to the future. And, you know, the future is extremely bright i think there's a there's a lot of unknowns but actually that's what drives me if the field was known then we probably wouldn't be in it (laughs) (laughs) it's part of the challenge and the excitement of of, of the sector And, and i think fundamentally it's and we haven't really touched on it today but fundamentally it's about changing lives of individuals i mean these are transformational therapies they are very difficult to to develop and and manufacture which is obviously the challenge but the impact they can have is 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 remarkable, and and I think far more so than most other therapeutic modalities. Which is why I think, yeah, I know for you and for me, it's what drives us, uh, and hopefully will drive many of those that are listening to this podcast. And and even when it gets difficult, we plow through, and and we have some fantastic results in the coming weeks, months, and years. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, joining me on this journey. Thank you for having a- me. Fantastic to speak to you, get your insights, and um, no doubt we'll catch up again soon. I'm sure we will.
It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. You can stay tuned for the next one by following us on social media. You can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter under Biocentric. That's B-I-O-C-E-N-T-R-I-Q. Or you can visit us at biocentric.com. Until next time, we hope this information and advice helps you on your path to clinical manufacturing.